Okay, there's a guy named Alvin Strait. He's 73 years old. He lives in Lawrence, Iowa. He has a brother that's 80 years old who lives in, it's just several hundred miles away, which is key, uh, Blue River, Wisconsin. The Associated Press reported that Alvin's 80-year-old brother suffered a stroke, and Alvin wanted to see him. However, he was stuck because he couldn't drive his car because his eyesight was so bad they wouldn't give him a driver's license anymore. They took it away from him. He wouldn't fly an airplane or ride a train or a bus because like Madden, John Madden of Madden Football, he has this phobia of public transportation. So what could he do? Well, this is what he did. He climbed aboard his 1966 John Deere lawnmower tractor and drove the hundred, several hundred miles just to see his brother. The city of Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but in Revelation, is the youngest city of all the seven cities that we're looking at, of the seven churches. It was founded around 189 BC by the oldest of four brothers. His name was Amenines II. He's the current king of Pergamon, which is the false teaching church that we've looked at several weeks ago. He named the city after his younger brother. Why, you ask? Because that's such a great question. And the answer is because his brother loved him. In 172 BC, the whole kingdom thought Amenines had been assassinated while he was attending what was equivalent to a UN meeting in those days in Rome. And grief-stricken, his brother assumed the crown because he was next in line. But come to find out, Amenines comes riding into town alive, and the whole town's thrown into panic because in those days, brothers took out brothers, sons took out fathers because the quest and the lust for power was amazing in the world in those days. And so everyone was fearful. The city was in panic. And his brother, his brother whose name was Attilus, Philadelphus, his brother simply said, what's the big deal? Took off the crown and bowed at his brother's feet. Why? Because he loved his brother. In 167 BC, the Romans threatened Attilus to overthrow his brother. They didn't like the way he was ruling. They wanted someone else to come in. This was a normal foreign policy move. It was threat, had threats. It had rewards of, of Roman influence and monetary funds and the threat of force. But Attilus refused the repeated threats and calls to overthrow his brother. Why? because he loved his brother. All throughout the kingdom, after all these events, the people started calling Attilus, Philadelphus, lover of his brother. It was known throughout the whole kingdom and started spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Being loved like that does something to you. It changes you. It reaches your heart in such a way and makes you alive. And it even causes you to name cities after the one who loved you. I want to welcome you to the city of brotherly love. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Revelations 3, 7 through 13. 
to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your words. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you illuminate our eyes? Would you give clarity to the mind? Would you, would you make real to the heart? May we experience you in and with this text by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so Ephesus is the good church. Smyrna is the suffering church. Pergamon is the false teaching church. Thyatira is the tolerant church. Sardis is the dead church. What's Philadelphia? It's the gospel church. I want you to look at verse 8. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. You have kept my word and not denied my name or saying the same thing. In other words, they are continuing in the good news. They are living a gospel life. These are folks that are intentionally building their messy lives around Jesus and his salvation. And the verb forms are telling us it is a dominant, defining DNA culture characteristic of this church. This church is about the gospel. This church is about continuing in the word of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. This church is all about the gospel. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. The literal translation goes like this. Because you have kept my word, have kept the word of my endurance. In other words, they are building their life around the good news of Jesus's endurance, which which encapsulates his whole life. The moment that he set foot On this earth as a baby, he was enduring. He was enduring sin. He was enduring shame. He was enduring darkness. He was enduring evil. He was enduring sickness because he was taking all of it and moving all of it and absorbing all of it finally and fully, the full measure of all horrors upon himself at the cross where he 
endured and became sin itself. He became the adulterer. He became the murderer. He became the liar. He became cancer. He became ALS. He became racism. He became human trafficking. He became mental illness. He became us. In the totality of our experience, this church is about the gospel. Building their lives around good news, not good advice. Notice nothing bad is said about this church. There's no rebukes. There's no corrections. There are no calls for repentance. There's only one other church like this, and this is Smyrna, the suffering church, which is interesting. So does this mean there are no problems in the personal lives and relationships of this church? Does it mean that this church is a corporate body, is a corporate community, as a, as a people have no problems in their leadership, in their ministries, the way they relate to each other? Of course not. But what this is saying, what this does mean is something very comprehensive, something very summarizing, something very global is being said about the church. What's being said? The church stands or falls based on the gospel. The church, Redeemer, the Baptist church, Pentecostal church, Bible church, Episcopalian church, Catholic church, Waco, Seattle, Timbuktu, church, your health or unhealthiness is based on the gospel. Your only comfort in life and in death is the gospel for the church. The root issue for every church in Revelation that needs a rebuke, needs a correction, needs a call to repentance, which is five of the seven, the root issue is what they do or don't do with the gospel. I mean, look at this. Look at uh, Ephesus. What did Ephesus do? They abandoned preeminent love. They abandoned ultimate love. They abandoned the first love of God for sinners. And in so doing, they wrecked their lives and their relationship. They rejected or they abandoned gospel love. They weren't building their lives around the gospel. That's why it's the first church that was addressed. Well, let's look at Pergamon. Pergamon gave in to false teaching. What that means is they gave in to false savior teaching. They, they were dishing out false saviors and false salvations as if they were. They handed out God replacements and said they were gods. Then you go to Thyatira and there was actually some definite embodiments of that. You had financial saviors, you had people saviors, you even had sexual saviors in that city. And then the last one we looked at was Sardis, and Sardis was like a turtle that you, you thought was a turtle. You go out to move it in the street, you pick it up, and it's a shell. It has all the forms of Christianity, all the liturgy of Christianity, all the ministries of Christianity, all the connections and externals of Christianity, but there was no turtle inside. There was no living faith. There wasn't a vibrant personal rest, reliance, and rejoicing in Jesus and his salvation in all of life. It was missing. So how does a church become like Philadelphia? How do you become a gospel church? How do you become a gospel person? How do you have gospel relationships, parenting? How does this happen? Well, that's what the rest of the, the message is about. That's what the rest of this letter is about. So let's take a look at it. Here's the first answer, and I want you to hear it, and then we're going to experience it. 
Here's the first answer. By believing you already have what you're looking for. Christian, you already have what you're looking for. All of your striving, all of your thinking about yourself, all of your effort, all of your angst, all of your discouragement, all of your working and willing, all of your trying, you already have it. You already have what you're looking for. Well, for about up until a couple years ago, every morning in our home, so this is about 20 years this happened, and if you include the time I was living with my parents when I was of drivable age, because I got my license, and I said this in the first service, I know it's being taped now, I got my license at 16, my brother got his license at 17 because he had bad grades. He listens to this, that's why I said that for him. So for 20-some-odd years, this is what would happen. Every morning, it became a ritual. It became a word. It actually even seeped into the carpet, and it seeped into the doors, and it seeped into the wood. And when you would hear it, it would, it would be this. Has anyone seen my keys? Hey, does anybody know where my keys are? They're not where I left them. Well, my life completely changed a couple of years ago. I, I got key salvation. I had a new change of heart. And my wife did it. You know what she ended up doing? She took a key ring and hung it by the door. So when I go out, when I come in, I put it on the key ring. So when I go out, there it is. Changed my life. But here's the crazy thing about that 20, 26, 27 years of saying it every morning. Has anyone seen my keys? Most of the time, the keys were already in my pocket. I already had what I was looking for. You already have what you're looking for. C.S. Lewis wrote a stunning piece called The Inner Ring. C.S. Lewis believed that everyone's struggling to get inside the inner ring. He wrote this. I want you to listen to it. I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside a local ring and the terror of being left outside. This desire is, in one of its forms, has indeed had ample justice done to it in literature. I mean, in the form of snobbery. Victorian fiction is full of characters who are hag-ridden by the desire to get inside that particular ring, which is or was called society. But it must be clearly understood that society, in that sense of the word, is merely one of a hundred rings. And snobbery, therefore, only one form of the longing to be inside. A thing may be morally neutral, and yet the desire for that thing may be dangerous. Let inner rings be unavoidable, <laughs> and even innocent feature of life, though certainly not a beautiful one. But what of our longings to enter them? But what of our anguish when we are excluded from them? But what of the kind of pleasure we feel when we finally get inside it? My main purpose in this address is to simply convince you that this desire is one of the greatest permanent mainsprings of human action. In other words, it drives the human heart. It is one of the factors which goes to make up the world as we know it. This whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, graft and disappointment advertisement. And if it is one of the permanent mainsprings, then you will be quite sure of this. The quest for the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. Look at verse 8. Behold, (laughs) 
the number one imperative, the number one command, the number one thing Jesus says to you and me and to the church is, open your eyes, look, see, behold. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. An open door to what? The ultimate cosmic inner ring. Look at verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. You know what the key of David was? The key of David was this key that was given to David's most faithful, loyal friend. It was given to the Attilus Philadelphus of the kingdom. And he had this key, and this key had the power to open up the riches of the king and the kingdom or close off the riches of the king and the kingdom. This ring had the power to open up access, personal connection to the king and the kingdom or close it off. And what Jesus, in other words, the steward, the steward had the power to open the inner ring to the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying from this text, he's saying, y'all, the quest for the inner ring is over. I've opened the door. You're in. You already have what you're looking for. Notice how in we are. Jesus is Attilus Philadelphus. Jesus is the better brother. Because look what he says in verse 8. I have set before you an open door. The verb form is saying, I did it. I did it. I did it. And no one can shut it. I opened it. It's done. It's finished. It's over. You have what you're already looking for. You're in the inner ring. Can you imagine if we get this? Do you know that the struggle to be accepted, to be let into that group or by that person is over for you? Needing so-and-so's acceptance, needing so-and-so's group in the church, whatever it is, or in the community, or at work, it's over. You're in the inner ring. You know that deep desire we have inside that we good night when someone shuts the door and blocks our way from the inner ring, whatever inner ring we want to get into, athletically, church, socially, economically, and there's that deep, deep desire to pay that person back or pay that institution back with revenge and hatred and withholding relationship. It's over. You're already in the inner ring. I wonder how much trouble, stress, strife, fractures, conflicts, interpersonally, relationally, conflicts that broke up churches, communities, races, how much of it would be healed if everyone knew, Christians, starting with Christians, you're already in the inner ring. You already have it. 
You don't need to establish inner rings in church. You don't need to establish inner rings societally. You don't need to establish inner rings economically or racially. You don't need to establish inner rings. You already have it. Jesus is saying what he's saying to you and me, he's saying, believe this. Believe it. It's done. It's finished. Stop trying to achieve it. The trying to achieve it part is running your life and your relationships into the ground. You already have what you're looking for. The quest, as C.S. Lewis says, of the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. Break it with the gospel. Only the gospel can break your longing, your desire, your craving, and your pain and your hurt and your suffering for not being in the inner ring. The gospel opens the door to the inner ring. And that's just talking about the king and his kingdom. We're not even getting specific with like justification, adoption, and all the riches and the treasures that you, you already have. They're already there. They're already yours. They're the keys are already in your pocket. The drive behind your need for love, the drive behind your need to be more than you are, the drive behind your need to not be disapproved, the drive behind the fear, the anxiety behind rejection or performance anxiety. You already have what you're looking for. This is profound in a gospel-driven church. The church at Philadelphia is believing that they already have what they're looking for. Second, they're believing the impossible too. Do you see this? All right, this is the Minnesota Crime Commission. And the Minnesota Crime Commission released a report that is quite frankly raw. It's more accurate and it's more biblical than churches, than Christians, than pastors and church leaders. I want you to listen to this. Here's what it says. Every baby starts life as a little savage. Those of you that are first-time mothers and you have your cute little, what, eight-month, nine-month, you're like, this is not a little savage, right? I give you six more months. And you're going to be like, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Again, this is a state agency assessing reality. Deny him these things, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if he were not so helpless. He is dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. Your kids, you. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child will grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Well... That's that. Look at verse 9. The keys to becoming a gospel church center around behold. There's two beholds. There's three, but two are in the same thing. So in verse 9, there's two, the third, the second and third behold. Behold, look, see, pay attention. I make those of the synagogue of Satan say, 
who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is an Old Testament picture of conversion. you got to remember that in Israel's day, Israel was the light of the world. Israel's where God saved sinners by grace and magnified his grace by saving this messy group of people. And so the, the good news was in the people of Israel, and the rest of the world was to come to Israel to find the good news of sinners and messed up people being reached and led into the inner ring to the king and his kingdom, right? And so this is a picture of Gentiles, the nations, coming to this small nation and bowing before them because their, their hearts have changed, because these steel shut hearts, the way is shut. Remember in the mountain that that only Aragorn could set these spirits free from because the way was shut? Well, those shut hearts were bowing to the grace of God. They were saying things like this. The nations and the people were saying, truly the Lord God is in your midst. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this was a picture of conversion, but this picture that we're seeing here is flipping the tables. It's not the Gentiles bowing down to Israel. It's Israel now bowing down to the church for salvation. And don't miss, don't miss who's bowing down. It can't get any more descriptive. It can't get any more dark than being a synagogue of Satan. The most shut hearts, the most closed hearts, the coldest metallic hearts on the planet, Jesus is saying, I do the impossible. I open them. I do it. Do you see what he's saying in verse 9? I will make them come. I will make them bow down. I will make them learn about the love of me. Jesus is saying, I shut closed hearts. I do this. I do the impossible. And when Jesus is saying it, what he's basically saying is the gospel does it. In other words, the gospel is Jesus and his salvation. So when Jesus says he opens shut hearts, he's saying the gospel alone opens shut hearts. Paul Miller, son of Rose Marie Miller, who wrote From Fear to Freedom, many of y'all have read that, and he wrote in his book, A Praying Life, which I'm reading right now. He writes, until you are convinced that you can't change your child's heart, you will not take prayer seriously. We could say this, until we, Redeemer, till we, the church, till we as Christians are convinced that we can't change our neighbor's heart, our friend's heart, our boss's heart, our spouse's heart, yes, our child's heart, the prostitute's heart, the human trafficker's heart, the drug addict's heart, your neighborhood's heart, the city's heart, the hurting heart, the mentally ill heart, the human heart, until we realize we can't, we don't have a clue what prayer is. And don't miss this. We don't have a clue what the gospel is and that the gospel is for all. Only the gospel can open shut hearts. The way is shut. Not anymore. Not when the king says, open. So how does the church 
become like Philadelphia? How do we become a gospel church? First, by believing we... By believing we already have what we're looking for, which is the gospel. The other is by believing the impossible, that Jesus alone opens shut hearts. In other words, the gospel alone opens shut hearts. That's why we take the gospel to the nations. That's why we take the gospel to Waco. That's why we take the gospel to our kids. That's why we take the gospel to our spouses. That's why we take the gospel to our friends and our neighbors. Because only the gospel can do this. Nothing else can do this. There's one last thing we got to look at, and it's not a point, and it's not a biblical principle. It's not something you need to understand, and it's not something you need to apply. It's something you got to experience. About 12 years ago, our kids, we have four at the time. This is our BT days before tie days. We mark our family by BT before or after tie. We are in the after tie years right now. We had four kids, 10 years later, tie. Our champ. All right, so the, Nancy took the kids down to Hawaiian Falls and did it with a bunch of, probably a lot of you ladies that were here and your kids, and they went to Hawaiian Falls. And at the park at Hawaiian Falls, there's a whirlpool, but it's not the kind of whirlpool that adults like. We like the whirlpools that... When you get in, the water moves, but you don't. So you can sip your adult beverage and just relax and enjoy yourselves. If you go to the Hawaiian Park, though, Whirlpool, you get in and move because it's whipping around a tight enclosed area that's no bigger than a large kid's pool, and it's about three feet deep. Well, after a full day at the park, I'm at home. Kids come home, and uh, our six-year-old Knox at the time, so he's the second, he's the third in the four, but he's the second son. He comes up to tell me about the day, and he says, Daddy, I got stuck against the wall in the whirlpool. I was trapped behind this big boy, and it was really scary. So as he starts talking, my pulse starts like racing a little bit, and I'm like, where was your mom? <laughs> what happened next? I will never forget what he said. He says, Daddy Cal. Cal is four years older, so he's 10. He says, Daddy Cal saw me and grabbed me. And he said it with such awe. He said it with such confidence. And he said it in such wonder of his big brother. Verse 7 reads, The words of the Holy One, the true one. The Holy One means the untouchable one. The Holy One means the incomparable one. The Holy One means the totally other one. We could say the big one. True one means the faithful one, the loyal one, the Attilus Philadelphia one. We could say the better brother. Jesus is your big brother. Be in awe. 